Hello, everybody. This is Rob Pass, the host of this podcast. I want to welcome you to this replay of episode 90, which is from three years ago. Those of you may remember Dr. Jacqueline Lamour on this episode. Dr. Lamour, who now works here with me at Mount Sinai at Kravis Children's Hospital, speaks with us about a paper she wrote, which is a multi-center work, looking at the impact of novel approaches to anti-rejection regimens, which reduce the use or remove the use of steroids, and what those outcomes are. This is a fascinating paper, and Dr. Lamour, obviously, quite an expert on this topic. Therefore, I hope everybody enjoys this week's replay of episode 90 from 2019. Next week, we'll be back with a new episode. Hope you enjoy. Petey Hart, Pediatric Cardiology Today. My name is Dr. Robert Pass, and I'm the host of this program. I'm Professor of Pediatrics at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, where I'm the Chief of Pediatric Cardiology at the Mount Sinai Kravis Children's Hospital. Thank you very much for joining me this week for our 90th episode of the podcast. I hope everybody enjoyed last week's 89th episode on the topic of a novel way to predict ventricular tachycardia in the Tetralogy of Fallopation. We spoke with Dr. Mark Kartoski of the DuPont Children's Hospital about a paper he wrote while working at Johns Hopkins on the use of a novel computational model for prediction of VT in patients with tetralogy. For those of you with an interest in adult congenital heart disease or electrophysiology in general, I'd strongly recommend you take a listen to last week's episode, number 89. As I say each week, if anybody would like to get in touch with me, please feel free to reach out. My email is easy to remember. It's pdheart at gmail.com. This week, we're moving on to the world of cardiac transplantation and heart failure. We'll be reviewing a recent article from the Journal of Heart and Lung Transplantation. The title of the work is Early Outcomes for Low-Risk Pediatric Heart Transplant Recipients and Steroid Avoidance, a Multicenter Cohort Study of the Clinical Trials in Organ Transplantation in Children Group. The first author of this work is Jacqueline Lamour, and the senior author is Stephen Weber for the CTOTC Investigators. After we're done reviewing this paper, Professor Jackie Lamour of the Children's Hospital at Montefiore, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, has graciously agreed to speak with us about this important work. I'm very excited to have my dear friend Jackie on the podcast. Therefore, let's get straight on to this week's article and then our discussion with Dr. Jackie Lamour. The work begins with a few general comments about the use of steroid avoidance regimens after pediatric solid organ transplantation and that these sorts of approaches have been used since the 1980s, with most of the contemporary studies on this being retrospective or registry in nature. The Clinical Trials on Organ Transplantation in Children, or CTOC, group developed a prospective multicenter observational cohort with the goal of assessing the impact of pre-transplant sensitization on pre- and post-transplant outcomes in pediatric heart transplant candidates. The authors explain that using a central core lab for anti-human leukocyte antigen, or HLA antibody determination, has enabled the team to identify a large cohort of subjects who had no evidence of donor-specific antibodies, or DSAs, at the time of transplantation. This low immunologic risk cohort was managed with a uniform immunosuppressive regimen that included no steroid usage beyond the first week after transplant, and after that, a standardized protocol of surveillance with endomyocardial biopsies was used. The goal of this report that we're reviewing this week, therefore, was to evaluate the outcomes for children 
who had no pre-transplant DSAs who were managed immunologically in this manner in order to assess outcomes. For those who don't know, the NIH-sponsored CTOC alloantibodies in pediatric heart transplant study is a prospective observational study which includes eight North American centers performing heart transplants with entry to the study from February of 2011 to December of 2014, and all patients in this work were followed for a minimum of one year. To be in this sub-study of the CTOC trial, inclusion criteria were subjects who were non-sensitized at transplant or had evidence of HLA antibodies, but without donor specificity. This criterion was assessed in a core lab by one of the authors of this work, who is an expert in histocompatibility. The authors reviewed the immunosuppression regimen, and in brief, all patients received thymoglobulin induction therapy at 7.5 mg per kilo and maintenance immunosuppression with tacrolimus and mycophenolate mofetil, or MMF. Steroids were used before each dose of thymoglobulin, but routine steroids were not otherwise given. Rejection surveillance was by biopsy at all centers, with assessment at weeks 1 to 2, 4 and 8, and months 3, 4, 6, 9, and 12. The authors describe what was in this work considered rejection, and for this study, acute cellular rejection was an ISHLT grade 2R or greater, and acute antibody-mediated rejection was also defined according to the criteria of the ISHLT. The authors also provide a definition for acute clinical rejection that was used by all centers. And on to the results. Among 240 heart transplant recipients, 186 subjects were non-sensitized or had no donor-specific antibodies, and these were the subjects of this work. The median age was 6 years, with non-black race being younger at transplant at 5 years versus 11.5 years. Roughly half were males and nearly 40% had congenital heart disease. At the time of transplant, 87% were status 1A, with 15% on a ventilator and 23% on mechanical circulatory support, such as a VAD or ECMO. Survival was seen in 94.5% of patients, with 5.4% of subjects dying in the first year post-transplant. Freedom from rejection was seen in nearly 68% in year 1, with 31% having an acute rejection event and 11% recurrent rejection events. In this work, most rejection was identified by biopsy, but about 8% of episodes were clinical rejection. Risk factors for rejection in this group on multivariable analysis were older age at transplant, presence of non-donor-specific antibodies prior to transplant, and non-black race. Freedom from infection requiring either hospitalization or IV therapy with antimicrobials was 75%, and freedom from hospitalization was 40%. Post-transplant PTLD was quite rare at 1.1% of subjects, and post-transplant diabetes was also rare at 1.6%. As expected, steroids were uncommonly used, and at one year, nearly 15% were on some dose of steroids. In their discussion, Dr. Lamour and colleagues compare and contrast the findings of this work to those in prior works on this subject, and I think it would be fair to say that in most respects, the findings of this work are similar to prior works, though perhaps these results are more robust or believable because of the prospective nature of this work. They speak of the low rejection incidence in this work, and they speak too of the elevated risk for rejection in older age patients, commenting that the immune response in later childhood will be greater, perhaps, than early life. They contrast the finding that non-black race was associated with an elevated risk for rejection 
with prior work suggesting that black race was actually associated with elevated risk for rejection, and the authors wonder if black race may no longer be a risk factor for early rejection, but may still be a late rejection risk, and this warrants study. They speak of the finding that the presence of non-DSA antibodies prior to transplant was associated with a 1.9 times risk for cellular rejection versus those without HLA antibodies, and the authors offer a number of possible explanations for this observation. They also comment on the low incidences of PTLD and diabetes, and posit that in the case of diabetes, this is likely due to the important benefits of little or no steroid therapy. And so they conclude that using this large-scale, multi-institutional prospective study of pediatric heart recipients in which standardized care was achieved, we demonstrated that recipients without DSAs at transplant and managed with a steroid avoidance regimen have excellent short-term survival and low risk of first-year diabetes mellitus and PTLD. Rehospitalization remains common, driven by acute rejection and infection. These contemporary observations allow for improved caregiver-patient counseling and provide the necessary outcomes data to help design future randomized control trials. Well, I'll be honest in stating that my lack of familiarity with this literature does limit my ability to comment intelligently on this topic. For sure, I think that this work clearly shows that avoidance of steroids is feasible in this subset of patients who have low pre-transplant antibody titers, and these data certainly suggest that for virtually all measures of success, whether it be prevention of rejection or infection, outcomes are as good or better than more traditional means of immunological modulation with older protocols that used steroids. It's of interest that even PTLD is similar or better than the prior literature on this topic would suggest. Given the excellence of these results, I can't help but wonder if this approach can in some manner be adjusted to the patient who does have DSAs. And this certainly is going to be one of the questions we should pose to Professor Lamour. Therefore, let's move straight on to our discussion with Dr. Jackie Lamour. Joining us now is Dr. Jacqueline Lamour. Dr. Lamour is Professor of Pediatrics at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and also Assistant Director of Pediatric Cardiology at the Children's Hospital at Montefiore, where she leads the heart failure and transplantation team. She's a graduate of SUNY Downstate College of Medicine in Brooklyn, New York, and completed her residency and fellowship in pediatrics and pediatric cardiology at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. She is certainly one of the most experienced heart failure and transplant physicians in the world and has participated in many multi-center studies focusing on heart transplant outcomes, such as the one we're reviewing this week. She's a member of the Pediatric Subcommittee of the Heart Failure Society of America and the Pediatric Heart Failure Study Group. On a personal note, she's one of my dearest friends in pediatric cardiology, and I had the pleasure and honor of working with Jackie on a daily basis for over 20 years. Anyone who knows Professor Lamour knows that she's a no-nonsense doctor who takes the finest care of her patients, and it certainly has been an honor and pleasure to be her friend for so long, and I'm thrilled to be able to share some of her wisdom with the audience this week. Welcome, Jackie, to the podcast. We're here now with Jacqueline Lamour. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us this week on the podcast. Rob, it's really a pleasure to be here, and thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Jackie, very much enjoyed this work with you and your co-authors in the eight centers. Generally speaking, the rejection rate seen in your study was somewhat lower than that seen with conventional immunosuppression, which I guess in the past was typically a combination of cyclosporin, azathioprine, and steroids. For the non-transplant expert cardiologists who are listening to us speak tonight, 
I wonder if you could explain what you and others in your field believe are the reasons that these newer immunological approaches to the prevention of rejection with a great degree of steroid sparing seem to be superior to the prior approaches. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. Um, I think that you know, to answer that, when we use cyclosporin and uh, azathioprine and steroids, you know, now we're using tacrolimus and mycophenolate, mofetil, MMF. Um, both of those, although tacrolimus is a calcineurin inhibitor like cyclosporin, it is thought to be more potent uh, as also CELSEPT as the adjunct instead of uh, azathioprine. So the need for uh, steroids may just not be uh, necessary. And we know that steroids have a lot of side effects that we're trying to avoid. In this study, as you know, we started with uh, the eight centers agreeing on immunosuppression therapy of induction therapy first, the thymoglobulin, which also probably conveys some uh, protection, if you will, while we get our calcineurin calcineurin inhibitors up and negating the need for steroids in a certain population. I see. I'm, I was wondering, Jackie, you guys are all very close in your field, but was it challenging to get eight different centers with multiple physicians to agree to the anti-rejection regimen that you guys ultimately settled on? Um, yes, I, I think so, but that really is the is one of the novel parts of this study and is also the primary paper that it really is the first large-scale uh, multi-institutional prospective study that we're able to get eight centers to standardize the immunosuppression and both the biopsy surveillance um, to really look at this question. Interestingly, when we talked about um, a decrease in rejection, uh, our colleagues over at Columbia had published uh, not that long ago their experience with what you asked, the drug difference between cyclosporin, imuran, and steroids versus this approach. And they too found a um, drop in rejection from like 58% to 38%. Hmm. I see. Well, I guess your study uh, is, uh, in some regards, the most robust thus far because it's a prospective trial. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And found similar findings. I mean, about 30% rejection is about what uh, they found, too. You know, Jackie, although this isn't really the focus of your work, I noticed that in this trial, biopsies were performed very regularly. And I know from our very long experience together that you've always been a very strong advocate of aggressive biopsying uh, to surveil for rejection. I wonder if you might explain to the audience the rationale for the use of uh, biopsies in this study and also in your general practice in comparison to some other approaches that have, I know I'm not a big, I don't have a great knowledge base on this topic, but I do know there are a lot of papers looking at non-invasive means of predicting rejection. Mm-hmm. Well, um, as you know, uh, I trained and grew up uh, in a center that is heavily biopsy focused, and my understanding and training and, and belief was that if you biopsy and catch rejection before you see evidence on non-invasive imaging, so before a decrease in function, that is probably better for the heart. Yeah. myocyte damage, etc. Now, there's, I guess, a school of thought that can say, well, if you biopsy frequently and regularly, you may pick up more things than you might with non-invasive imaging. 
guess the flip side is, is with non-invasive imaging, you may overtreat if you see subtle signs of decreased function that might be caused from other things. I mean, we know that that could be true from hypertension or coronary artery disease. Um, but the reality is, I think that a lot of the non-invasive imagers really started because of necessity. I mean, they they usually came from centers that had infants and small children, where it was uh, technically more challenging, probably more risk factors, and maybe even logistically weren't able to perform biopsies. I see. Uh, what we're really getting to now uh, in the Pediatric Heart Transplant Society, we're actually trying to look at these issues because it really is, well, does it make a difference in outcome, what we do? And we have a uh, great way to really start trying to look at that. Within the society, there are centers that are non-invasive imaging in terms of looking for rejection, and some of them are um, look at biopsies. So the first step is to really try to tease out, is there really a difference in outcome, no matter what you do retrospectively, hmm. and then try to design a prospective trial to see if we can see if there's really any difference, no matter what you do. And if there, if there is, uh, it would probably push people towards changing clinical practice. And if there isn't, well, then may, it may push people to choose more non-invasive imaging. Strategies. I have to say, I'm surprised that no one's ever retrospectively studied this thus far. Yeah, and it really is, seems it's like a big push now within the Pediatric Heart Transplant Society to look at that. Uh, we're looking at differences in immunosuppression strategies, um, biopsy versus no biopsy, how we uh, treat coronary, uh, how we surveil for coronary disease even within our institutions is different, and to really see if it makes a difference. I see. Well, uh, Jackie, one of the more interesting uh aspects of this work was the impact of race on rejection. Prior works have demonstrated that black race was associated with more rejection, but your work actually showed that non-black race was associated with a higher chance for rejection. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on why this was the finding in your work. Yeah, this is a good point. We were a little surprised by this finding too, as I can say our reviewers were, and we uh, really did have to speak to this. In looking a little deeper into it when when you look at the different uh, articles that are out there about black race we talk about black race as a risk factor for recurrent rejection for late rejection for hemodynamically significant rejection but remember this paper that we're talking about is really one year outcomes and so maybe in that one year there really aren't those differences um, and that as we now look to the rest of this follow-up study, which is going to be uh, five-year results, maybe this benefit will no longer be there. I see. So that might speak more to so sociological impact at longer-term follow-up, perhaps. Right. Or, you know, again, some immunologic difference between races. If, you know, when we know when we talk about thymoglobulin, uh, we... I think that T-cell effect can really last, um, you know, six months or so. So maybe we're just not seeing quite the effect. I see. I see. Yeah. You know, Jackie, uh, this work looks only at patients who do not have pre-transplant donor-specific antibodies and so would be expected to be the easiest group in which to prevent immunologic response to a transplant. I wondered what your thoughts were on steroid-sparing approaches to patients who are perhaps less good immunological candidates. Is there a role for the type of approach that you're describing in this paper 
to a slightly higher risk uh, immunological patient? That's a really good question, Rob. I think that I think the jury is still out in terms of what is the ideal or best immunosuppression for uh, any given population of patients. What I think in this paper, what we tried to achieve was at least show in what we think is the low immunologic risk, what those percentages are. I mean, there still was rejection. Um, and we know that those that had no uh, HLA antibodies had less rejection than those that even had uh, antibodies but no donor-specific antibodies. Hmm. And when you look at our study, even 15% of the cohort one year were on steroids. Yes. So, so who should be in these groups? There's clearly a risk of patients that we would consider higher risk. And even within, um, it's not in this paper, but it was in the primary paper of children who we think are at risk or who are sensitized, we're um, getting a different immunosuppression protocol. Mm-hmm. I see. So I think the jury is still out on which is the best and who is the best. But you can imagine that in this paper, when we talk about even the thymoglobulin, the induction therapy plus Tacro and Celsapt, there was still also a pretty robust risk of infection. So mm. is there a group who is low enough risk that may need less immunosuppression. The flip, Mm. I guess, of what you're asking. So um, is there a, you know, the infant who is a dilated cardiomyopathy who has no HLA antibodies, um, but may be at risk for all the viruses that they are naive to of using less immunosuppression and then tailoring the approach as they um, add on risk factors. Wow, well, that's a very interesting, you just flipped my question in a very novel and interesting way that we actually may one day be able to give less immunosuppression and have uh, lower rates of rejection. But of course, to me, this is not shocking because I've worked with you for over 20 years and I know how brilliant you are and I'm very excited that this evening I'm able to share a little bit of this with the audience. Jackie, I can't thank you enough for coming on. For those in the audience, it's after 9 o'clock. I know Dr. Lamore works very hard, and I'm very appreciative, Jackie, of you coming on this week on the podcast. Uh, you're very welcome, Rob. It's really a pleasure to be with you and to hear your voice. <laughs> thank you so much, Jackie. <laughs> well, once more, there's not much to say with such an authoritative guest as Jackie Lamore. I thought her comments on her rationale for a biopsy-heavy means of monitoring her transplant patients to be of interest and made a lot of sense. She also offered for us some comments on why non-black race may have, for the first time in this study, be associated with more rejection. And she offered some thoughts on the relatively short-term follow-up of one year in this study, and wondered aloud if the rejection rates may have reflected early outcomes of rejection, and that perhaps with greater time there may be biological differences that will change the outcomes in longer follow-up. I thought it was interesting how she explained that with increasing knowledge about the immunology of transplantation, it was likely that there may come a time when transplant experts may in fact be able to use less immunosuppressive agents with similarly good prevention of rejection, and perhaps even fewer infectious complications. Offline, Jackie explained that it was her belief that one of the most important aspects of these data was that we now had definitive prospective benchmarks that can be used as a means of comparison for future efforts in this arena, as well as perhaps helping to inform the development of clinical trials going forward, which is something that Dr. Daphne Sue mentioned roughly a year ago on the podcast. 
I'm most appreciative of Dr. Lamore's contribution today, and I hope you enjoyed her commentary as much as I did. To conclude this replay episode of episode number 90 with Dr. Jacqueline Lamore, we'll hear the wonderful American baritone, Leonard Warren, who is commonly viewed as one of the greatest baritones of all time for his large, warm voice with a wonderful range up and down the registers. Today we hear him sing the Tchaikovsky song, None But the Lonely Heart, which was part of a set of six romances for voice and piano, composed in 1869. Thank you for joining me for this replay of episode 90, and thanks once again to our guest, my friend Dr. Jacqueline Lamore. I look forward to a fresh new episode next week. Sir.